This is Chad Cordero, former closer for the Montreal Expos and Washington Nationals, and you're listening to the Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the Pro Sports Podcasters. My name is Colbert Garand. You all know me as Kobe. And today we have got someone I actually watched as a kid win the World Series for my hometown team, the Toronto Blue Jays. And he played also for the Philadelphia Phillies and finished his career actually as a Blue Jay. And we're lucky enough to have him with us today. Rob Butler, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on this early Sunday morning. It's great. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining us. Now, I'm going to get right into it. Uh, baseball is generally not that high up on sports chosen by Canadians. What was it that led you to baseball? You know, it's it's funny because um, for me and my brother growing up in Toronto, uh, Maine and Danforth, right near hockey arenas everywhere, we, we decided that for whatever reason, we love playing catch and hitting fly balls to each other. We just fell in love with baseball when we were really young. I used to... Um, Watch old baseball highlights in the early 70s, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig when they used to, I actually thought they were still playing at the time because I was five and six years old. I didn't yeah. know that they were back in the 20s. <laughs> but just watching those guys and, and how good they were, I just wanted to be like them. That, that's what actually inspired me for sure. I just wanted to be like those guys and play that sport. And I knew nothing about it really because no one was really playing it or, you know, there wasn't a lot of baseball games going on where we were growing up. So we were fortunate enough to you know, had the Blue Jays come to town and they're on TV most times. And, you know, we, we just fell in love with it more than anything else. It was, it was actually pretty interesting how we did that because none of our friends like baseball. It was only me and my brother. Yeah. I'm sure you were surrounded by a bunch of guys playing hockey when it came right down to it, maybe basketball as well, but yeah, baseball generally is down the line when you're Canadian. Did your parents uh, like support you in your pursuit of baseball? They did. I would say my parents came to any sport we were playing. My parents were always there. And it's funny, where I grew up, I grew up with a bunch of break dancers at me and Danforth. All my buddies had cardboard on the ground and were doing break dancing. They weren't even playing hockey. They loved other things. And it was this, I couldn't dance. So I guess I had to play baseball. <laughs> so, um, yeah, my parents were non-sport people, but they were very athletic. Like, they never, ever played organized sports. My, my dad came from Newfoundland when he was 18 years old to get a job. And my mom, her, her mom passed away in 1953, long before, she, my mom was only two. So she never really got to play sports, but she could run marathons. My mom and dad ran the Toronto Marathon every year. Oh. I think that we inspired them to watch sports. I signed myself up to play baseball. Uh, my parents had nothing to do with me ever signing up for a sport. I had played soccer when I was nine years old, signed myself up. I played baseball at East York when I was 11. That's when I started. I went over there with my buddy. Grabbed my mom's glove, which was for the wrong hand. I'm, I'm left-handed. My mom was right-handed. And I actually went to my first baseball tryout at East York House League as a right-handed player using the wrong hand. But when I signed up, my mom and dad never missed a game my whole life. They could not wait to watch me and my brother play sports. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, I mean, there's a lot of people who end up, you know, taking the route. They go through all the trials and tribulations and the long journey to become a professional in the sport that they love very few end up getting to play for the team that they basically followed bang on, like from the get-go. How did that happen? Yeah, no, it's, um, I don't know. I think I prayed hard for it all the time. I just, I always wanted to be a baseball player. Even when, you know, I'm looking at my old uh, yearbooks from back in school, like in things I saw even when I was in grade three and four, my friends were saying, I was only eight, nine years old. I wasn't even playing baseball yet, but I guess I talked about it all the time. And they were always telling me, you're going to be a baseball player. And I guess because we always played this game called wall ball burby at the park. And that's really where, where my brother and I learned how to play with some of our friends who wanted to play against us. It's a little game, put a box on the wall, and you try to hit the tennis ball over the fence. And that's really what got us playing every single night when we were young. So when the Blue Jays finally came to town, it was Bob Baylor and John Mayberry and Barry Bunnell. 
I, I just couldn't wait to go to a Blue Jay game. I used to go get those Dominion $1 tickets. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I had my little paper route. I make like 14 bucks a week and I would spend, you know, a dollar or $2 on the Dominion tickets. I go sit in the old exhibition stadium bleachers and it was, uh, I couldn't wait to see, I just couldn't wait to see those guys. I never went to watch a hockey game. I only wanted to watch baseball and I would save up my money to go watch Blue Jay games. And, you know, even when they weren't winning, it still didn't matter to me. I just, I just, I loved the announcers. I loved Tom Cheek, Jerry Howarth, Tony Kubek on TV. I, I, I was just so much, baseball was in my blood for some odd reason when I was a young kid and it worked out. I got to play for, you know, my favorite team. Uh, Dave Steve became my favorite player. I thought it was Dave Steve uh, for most of my teenage years. I wanted to do like him. I emulated his pitching stance. Even though I was never a very good pitcher, I still, I still always copied all the players. I pretended I was Lloyd Mosby. I pretended I was George Bell. I always, I just imitated those guys um, with my brother, just even on our front lawn. We used to swing a bat in our front lawn all the time on Barrington. And our friends would always walk by and ask us, you know, to come break dancing and, you know, do other things. And we were like, you know what? I'm pretty happy here just swinging the bat. And that's what we did every night. And so that back-to-back winning World Series team, who was it in the clubhouse that really was the glue that kept that team together? Honestly, it was, it was everybody. It's, um, I mean, we had Paul Malter. I mean, when I, in 92, I was actually only in A-ball in 1992. Okay. When the Blues won the first World Series. But I broke my foot and I was able to rehab at Skydome. I had to come home from Florida. And so I got to hang out with the Blue Jays during the World Series in 1992 and all the playoffs. Yeah. With um, Dave Winfield and David Cohn and just watching them all. And I was really young. I was only 20, 21 years old. And it was the whole team. And even when I was there in 93, it was honestly, it was everybody from top to bottom. Everybody was tight. Everybody had respect for the hierarchy of the team. Paul Mulder was the top, you know, Joe Carter and Devo, um, Pat Borders. These guys all, they're all there for the same reason. They all loved, they all loved each other and just were great leaders in that. They all had so much respect for each other. Nobody kind of like stood up and said, this is the way it's going to be. This is how we're doing things. It was it was, truly was true chemistry. And I know, I know some people on TV that I hear today say there's no such thing as chemistry. There absolutely is everything with chemistry. We were like a, a tight family and it was just easy to be around each other and play, play for each other. I mean, that's ultimately what it ended up being. You just play for each other, right? You want to be a part of um, helping, helping the team win. And it was so important. And, you know, I was a rookie that year and they treated me like I was just one, one of the guys. Like I was, the first day I walked in, I was, there was no, there was no separation on how, you know, where you were, if you're a 20 year veteran or, you know, your first days in the big leagues, it was, that was why we won. It was amazing. Now, when you got the call up to join the squad, was it something you had expected at the time or was it a surprise to you? Like how, how was that? My whole baseball career was a surprise to me, to be honest. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, growing up, growing, I mean, I grew up in Ontario housing. I grew up in government housing on, at Maine and Danforth. So me and my brother, we didn't have, we didn't care that we didn't really have a lot. Getting called up to the major leagues. Was a, was a huge surprise. Considering that I know what, you know what that path was for me from being a kid to being a teenager and all the trials and tribulations you go through. Playing on the Olympics, I went to the Olympics in 1988. I was an Olympian as an 18 year old in high school, playing on the baseball team with a bunch of college guys and future first round picks for the Americans. And I never, as much as I loved baseball and the dream of being a major leaguer, because I did dream about it every single day, I never really thought it would truly happen especially once I was professional and how hard it is and how good everybody was. I mean, my fr- I was actually so afraid to do it. I lived with a lot of anxiety as a kid, uh, a lot of anxiety. It took me away from a lot of things. And uh, at a time when, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, when no one ever talked about what their feeling was, when about things like anxiety and stress and, you know, depression and stuff. So it was, um, I would say it was a very difficult time for me when I became a professional. My first spring training in 1991, I went to Florida and I actually went AWOL for a couple of days and I tried to quit. I didn't want to do it. I was terrified. I went and lived in a hotel. The Blue Jays were looking for me, calling my mom and dad, where's Rob? And I was basically hiding in a little motel for about 48, almost 72 hours, contemplating my whole life as um, a young man full of something that he had no idea what these feelings, what was going on. I was terrified. I wasn't eating. I was throwing up all the time. So my whole being of being a baseball player terrified me. It, it, it really almost did not happen. And I remember my brother and my girlfriend at the time were coming to see me. And I finally contacted one of my family members who told the Blue Jays where I was and I was okay. 
but I was going to quit baseball. I wasn't going to go back. I wanted to come home and deal with whatever I was dealing with. You know, I know I had no idea what that meant or what, how I was going to go about it. But I ended up seeing a therapist with the Toronto Blue Jays and that changed my whole life. I was able to basically empty my body out of all these things that I was dealing with as a kid and as a teenager growing up. They asked me if I would stay at spring training and be a baseball player and do what I wanted to do and be, be what I wanted to be my whole life. And I said, no, I had to go home. I went home. I came back to Toronto and I did three months of therapy. I went to a therapist three days a week, just dealing with all of my anxieties and you know, all the things that had affected my whole life. I was um, not a healthy person in my mind and I didn't know how to deal with it in 1991. Um, I don't think a lot of people would have back then because to be mm -hmm. a professional athlete and admit that you have some issues is difficult, right? You, I mean, to, even today, most people tell you they don't talk about it. So it was a dark, very dark time, a time where I didn't think I was going to be a baseball player. But I actually did get the help that I needed without knowing what I was even doing. I didn't understand that path. And the person I talked to changed my whole world. I kind of rebuilt my whole soul, my whole being of having more confidence and trusting that I could be something that I wanted to be. And, you know, because when you have terrible anxiety like that, you really are full of doubt, right? You, you just don't think that you're capable or worthy or, you know, you have all those terrible feelings of fear, which paralyzes you and stops you from doing a lot of things. And for me, that happened. So the surprise is that they asked my, my therapist asked me in about May if I wanted to be a baseball player. And I said, yes. And it was the first time I admitted that I could actually try and do it. He had kind of repaired my whole soul and brought me back to life. And um, so when I went to, I went to spring, I went to a, a mini camp June 1st. And probably what helped me the most was the fact that my brother came with me. He was, he signed pro. We both signed pro the same day, but he was only 17 years old and he couldn't go to spring training. The first time around when I went, I had to go by myself. So the second time around, after doing so much, so much healing and, and helping my mind and my soul kind of be rebuilt, uh, we went to spring training together. It was our little mini camp spring training and it, it was the only way I could do it. I mean, having his support and being there, you know, he's three years younger than me was, was what I needed the most. And mm -hmm. it's funny cause I'd already been through so many things. I played a national team and traveled the world. I played baseball on five different continents, but for some reason, something hit me as a professional. I just was so scared to do it. So I went to, went, we went to that mini camp and we were awful. We were probably the worst players there and Nobody was surprised because we're from Canada, we're from Toronto. Still <laughs> yeah. uh, Galt was, you know, looking at, I, I couldn't hit the ball out of the infield. I used, it was my first time ever using a wood bat was when I was 21 years old. Yeah, I could still see him looking out from the batting cage going like, is there a 10 year old hitting or are we a professional? Here? <laughs> and my brother's in the batting cage, like we're about to hit next. And he's like, oh man, this is not, <laughs> this is not going too well. So we, we were actually roommates. We were roommates as well, which really helped because, you know, my brother loved making spaghetti and meatballs. We ate spaghetti and meatballs every night. We went to the ice cream shop every night. Just had, I mean, it was so much fun, um, but we were brutal. Oh my God. I didn't think we were going to make it out of that first camp. So probably about our third or fourth night in, we decide we're going to be Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. And we walked into the park. And this is the time when nobody did this. We had our socks up really high, like right underneath our kneecaps. Yeah. We pulled it, we pulled it like everybody, like, like that Bob look that he has now. <laughs> so me and my brother, two Canadians who are basically, I mean, we look exactly the same back then come walking in and honest to God, I've never been made more fun of, but for some weird, odd reason, this was why I ended up doing this my whole career with my high socks. We started playing good. We started hitting, we were playing good outfield. We were just, we were in the groove, man. Like it was, it was a transformation of something that helped us feel like we were baseball players and connected to something because it all changed. All of a sudden, we were playing really good. I went from not thinking I was going to ever make the even make the rookie ball team in Medicine Hat or rookie ball team down in Charlotte, where my brother ended up going, to winning the MVP in the New York Penn League that year. I went, I was second in the batting batting title and won the MVP of the league. Had the best year of my life playing baseball. And nobody knew that, you know, and starting in June, that back in February, I, I was contemplating like not even living anymore. I was so down at the bottom of my life to being on the top of my life. It, it was incredible. So when I ended up being called to the big leagues in 1993, only two years later, um, it was during a doubleheader in Syracuse. Nick Label was the manager. And I was having a good year. I was having another good season. I was batting about 330, but still not expecting that I was going to go to the big leagues. And I was playing with Woody Williams and Gregor Holleran and mm -hmm. Doug Linton. And 
guys who I thought were going to the big leagues. I just thought it was just there. It wasn't really dawning on me that I was ever going to play a major league baseball game. It's funny. I just, it just never really hit me that I would actually be a major leaguer. So I was, um, I hadn't missed it. I hadn't missed a game. Unless I was injured. I was always in the lineup. And for the second game of the doubleheader, I was not in the lineup. I was, Nick Leva said, you're going to take a little breather second game. We're going to let someone else play, but you can go coach first base. So I was, out, out, I was actually out coaching first base, doing whatever, just, you know, chilling out. And all of a sudden on the scoreboard, and the big roar of the crowd comes up, Rob Butler, congratulations, you're going to the major leagues. That's how you found out? That's how I found out. That's crazy. Nick, Nick Leva. I, so for me, I didn't understand. I didn't know the whole protocol and, and the way things have worked in baseball for about 125 years at that point. The manager is supposed to tell you. Hmm. The manager takes you, you know, you, 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 walk, you go up after the game, you get tapped in the shoulder, manager wants to see you, Rob, and you're like, oh, are you in trouble, blah, blah, blah. But no, no. That's how they call you up to the big leagues. The manager is the first person to tell you. Mm-hmm. So I guess it came through the wire to Syracuse, and they put it on the scoreboard, and I'm I'm like I'm I, I was totally shocked. Obviously, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. There's about 2,500 people in the stand. They all were like giving a standing ovation, blah blah. Nick Leva is pointing at the scorekeeper, screaming and pointing and yelling at him. He is so livid, so livid. He comes right up to me and says, "Rob, you are not. No one finds out they're going to the big leagues on the scoreboard at the stadium." <laughs> That is my job, and that is that is the main reason a manager is here to tell a player that you're going to you're going to the dream. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Didn't take anything away from it. Honestly, I was like instantly like I like I lifted off the ground, and I just didn't understand what was happening. I was literally became instantly numb, and like because in my soul and in my mind, from the time I was seven years old, I always wanted to be a major league baseball player, and then when it did happen. I was just—I couldn't believe it. It was—it was a total, total shock, and I had no idea what to expect. There's no training for that. I mean, back then they didn't train you on anything. You know, you just kind of played baseball, and you know, no one tells you, you know what the major leagues is going to be like. It's not like the minor leagues. The minor leagues is very developmental. Everybody's right there for you. They give you time to grow. You can make mistakes, and you know, there's no fans around. I mean, there's a few typical Syracuse or whatever minor league park fans that they are. They just love their team and there's no, there's no pressure. It's so different. There's no pressure. Yeah. And uh, if I was to go back in time, I would say, guys, you need to make sure we all know what's about to happen to us because playing in the major leagues is very difficult, very hard and very triggering. If you ever have any problems in your life, trust me, when you go home at night, they're all bashing out of your brain and going, Oh my God, what am I doing here? There's 50,000 people now watching me play baseball and analyzing everything that you're doing. So overall, it was a total shock. Honestly, I couldn't believe it ever happened. Yeah, no, un- understandable for sure. Before I pass you on to Nee, who's joined us. Nee, how's it going? I'm good, Cobe. Yourself? Fantastic, buddy. Fantastic. There's a couple of things I want to address with what you said there, Rob. Yeah. I get that Nick Leva was upset because it, it takes away from his validation as well, right? Mm-hmm. Your success is his success. Yeah. And he gets to share it in that moment where he tells you, hey, you're moving up. So I can understand him being upset about the announcement appearing on the scoreboard. The other thing you mentioned was that you you had anxiety for most of your life, correct? Yes. Leading up to that, to up to that moment. Were you aware of it or is it something you became aware of once you had that breakdown in Florida and then saw the therapist after? I was definitely aware of it because it did affect most of my life. But it was definitely, uh, I was aware of it, but not understanding what was going on. Because there's a lot of times in my life where I was totally fine. Okay. You know what I mean? When I'm playing in the park, hanging out, it kind of it kind of came and went when things were tough. Like when I was in school, there was definitely warning signs. There was definitely red flags for me. Like I never spoke in class. I kind of hid in the back of the class all the time. I never ever would speak in front of my schoolmates. Um, I had teachers who would say, what's wrong with you? Why do you never put your hand up? Just little things like that. Okay. I get sick a lot before I went to school. Like I threw up a lot before I had to go to school. And in grade 12, ultimately, it, it definitely affected me a lot in grade 12. Uh, I, I dropped out, basically dropped out of high school. I didn't finish high school. I would have got my grade 11. And it was all through fear and not really, I think what made it worse is I didn't understand what was happening to me. I didn't get it, right? So, but I had, I had a goal. I had a dream. I worked hard. I went to the gym every day. I swam every day. I, I, I played baseball as much as I could. I did everything. I played a little bit of hockey in host league in East York. So I was, I was like, I was an athlete, athlete of the year. In, I was actually athlete of the year in high school, but internally I was a mess. I really was. And I really hid it. I really hid through 
trying, it, it's funny, I hid what was going on with me by being a really good athlete or being a good baseball player. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, you, you either dump your life completely or you overachieve. And so I tried to overachieve in everything I was doing because I, I wanted to hide it all. I didn't want to be kind of exposed on that. I was um, suffering inside all the time. Yeah, no, that's definitely a different time. Most people suffered in silence when it came to it in, in those days. Yeah. yeah. So when I even went to like, I went to the Olympics, you know, I, I, as I came out of grade 12, um, even though I was a high school dropout, I, I played on the Olympic team. And I went to, I lived in Vancouver for six months. I tried to finish high school. I couldn't do it. But I played in a program called the NBI, uh, National Baseball Institute, that Blue Jays sponsored. I did that. I came back and played another World Championships in baseball. I did three World Championships. So externally, I would think most, a lot of my teammates would think everything was fine. But I definitely was a very introverted person. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't outgoing party or anything like that. I kind of stayed to myself, stayed in my hotel room all the time by myself. So it was kind of forced out of me. All this was really triggered and forced out of me when I became a professional. Something okay. definitely was different about that where there was no hiding it anymore. It had to come out and it came out through me basically going AWOL and yeah. not being able to control my thoughts or my, like I, I was, I couldn't even think. My whole world was spinning. Everything was moving too fast. So I ran and hid and that's how it basically came out. And I was finally able either going to crash and burn completely or deal with it. No, thanks for sharing, buddy. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, no problem. It's refreshing to hear that, firstly, that you're open enough to share that with us. We appreciate that. And that you're comfortable enough to seek the help that you needed. And I feel like there are many, many people that experience similar feelings on, on maybe different levels, but they don't know what it is. So it's, mm -hmm. it's something that we probably should be talking more about in our society. Now, Rob, you have the distinction of being the only Canadian on the Blue Jays World Series winning roster in 1993. Was, mm. was that a significant thing for you at the time or was it uh, more statistical? It was, at the time, it was very significant for me because um, uh, I love Canada. I'm so, I, I'm so lucky and happy to be Canadian. It's unbelievable. I played for my country in the Olympics. I, 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 I played for us in world championships and all these tournaments and I was so proud to be Canadian. So it was very important, but it also caused me a lot of, it brought back a lot of internal struggle because I never felt like I could live up to that sort of expectation when I was a Toronto Blue Jay because there was a lot of attention that was going on at that time. Being a Canadian and, you know, I was one of the youngest players on the team. I was a rookie. I was also playing on a team. I just won a World Series. And, you know, I was a fan that was in the um, World Series parade as a fan. And then the next year I was in the World Series parade as a player. It was very... Uh, I loved it, but it became heavy, really heavy for me because that's all everyone ever talked about. And I think it also became heavy because my teammates struggled a little bit with it at sometimes. They didn't like that I was Canadian and thought I was getting special treatment, even though I was not. Um, there was, you know, as much as my teammates were very, very supportive, there also was that, those whispers of, you know, he's only here because he's Canadian. I heard that a lot. I heard that a lot from the media, from, you know, my, some of my teammates. And it wasn't that they were being mean to me or anything. They just, they, everybody was kind of thrust, thrust even though Rob Ducey had already been there and, you know, a lot of, some of the Canadians had played for the Blue Jays. I think I was the sixth, sixth Canadian to do it. There was something different about that team and the attention that I got and the weight I carried. I remember my very first game was in Detroit and it was 48,000 people there. And I think 90% of them were Canadian. Cause I remember walking, I remember being out in, in left field, walking around and looking up at the stands cause the, the old Detroit State Tiger Stadium was a big kind of circle. And there were so many Canadian flags and, you know, they were all waving their flags at me. And that's when it kind of hit me that I was Canadian playing for my Canadian team. And I was like, oh, my God, I feel like the weight of the world's going to be on my back here. And I don't know if I can do this. So it was, um, it definitely was not easy. I loved it because I love being a Canadian and I love Toronto. The Toronto Blue Jays was, I mean, it's the reason why I played baseball really was because of the Toronto <laughs> Blue Jays and I love baseball. But yeah, it was definitely difficult. I would I would say that um, doing it all over again, if I wanted to have a full, long, healthy major league career, probably should have played for like Kansas Kansas City Royals or something because uh, <laughs> it took years off my baseball career. It became very difficult uh, as the season went on and the more interviews I did because I, I didn't feel comfortable doing them at the time. I really didn't want anybody even paying attention to me. Even though I dealt with a lot of my, um, a lot of my anxiety and was sort of, 
had tools to help me get through some things through my routines and things that I did, it started to weigh it down. It started to crack it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't hold it in very much. Um, once the season rolled along, we played in the World Series. I started to really suffer again being Canadian on the Canadian team. It was hard. Hmm. Yeah, no, I get all that, and it's it's almost like you're the lightning rod when things go bad and when things go good. It's almost like yeah, like you said, he's getting special treatment. So it's yeah, yeah. And it was difficult for it was difficult in the aspect of you know a lot of players that I ended up playing. I ended up having a ten year professional career. I played parts of four years in the major leagues. And every team I'd ever played with, you know, what the worst thing they wanted to do play at home. Nobody wanted to go to their hometown and play. They couldn't sleep. They had to worry about tickets. They no. had friends. They had to go see their mom and dad. They had to, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the phone wouldn't stop. Like you had to hide. They changed their names in the hotel so they couldn't be found. Like it was, they they didn't want to live that for four days. Something that I was living for a whole season as a rookie in the major leagues. And so it was, you know, it it it, it kind of it made me realize it's not easy playing in your hometown. <laughs> for sure. This episode is brought to you by Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. Get into your best shape with their comprehensive programs. So sign up now to either their basic package or warrior package with the code PSPKB, all caps, for 15% off. Stay fit this winter with Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. And it's not easy playing for your country, but you're able to do that. You're able to represent Canada, like you said, at the Olympics and at World Championships. When you played in 1988, that was actually the i guess the introduction of baseball in a way as a demonstration sport baseball's now back it came back in tokyo in 2021 are you happy to see it back at the summer olympics do you you think it has its places at the summer olympics oh yeah definitely i think uh, baseball should never have been removed i mean it's hard to build a baseball stadium in a country that's not big on baseball so that's why they don't always have the olympics um for baseball but it is played so much around the world and it is such a fun sport and so many people watch it and follow it. And I know my experience in the Olympics in 88 in Seoul, Korea was, I mean, I wasn't an 18 year old kid with pimples on his face and I don't think I was shaving yet. I definitely was not drinking. I definitely wasn't even allowed to drink. So it was uh, uh, something that is so important and so memorable and it puts you on a world stage and you know, it's how you should be winning battles as in sports and not in wars. You know, it's just, the Olympics is so important for every sport. There we go. It's interesting that you mentioned that because one of our previous guests, you may have in fact crossed paths with him at Philadelphia, Mickey Morandini. Mickey oh, yeah. Morandini. Yeah, he played, he played for the U.S. at that same yeah. tournament, and then you obviously played against him in 93. Yeah. So it's interesting that we've and got the... And then I was the, a teammate in 1997. <laughs> yeah. There we go. So <laughs> we got the reverse. We got the, a different perspective on things. Yeah, it's crazy. he would never have known me in the 1988 Olympics. Those guys, the Americans, they did, Tino Martinez and some of these other guys, they were making fun of us when we were playing against them. Although we beat them in the Olympics 9-8, they were still uh, looking at us like we were like little cousins at the park playing against them. That's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Mickey Morandini, great guy, great teammate, hard worker, like gritty. That's why he had a nice long career. Playing in Philadelphia is very difficult. That's a mean, mean town when you don't play well. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I really, I, I adored him. I was, a, I was a great year playing for the Phillies. He was a great guy to talk to too. He was, it was a fun interview for sure. Yeah. Now, during your stint, was there was there anyone specific pitcher wise that people were always worried about facing? Was there like one pitcher in the league that people were like, oh, we got to face this guy on Friday? Uh, well, I found I found out um, that Dave Steeb. So Dave Steeb was my favorite player growing up. My yeah. favorite blue jersey, like I said. And anyways, so when I he in '92 he was rehabbing. He came down to play. He came down to pitch for the the Dunedin Blue Jays. I was playing center field, and he was my idol. I mean, I idolized Dave. I went to just watch him. I, I specifically went to watch him play when I went and bought tickets for the Blue Jays. And he was he was um, he had to do his rehab. And anyways, I was playing center field. I'm standing in center field. I got tears in my eyes. Sean Green comes over to, from right field saying, what the hell's wrong with you? I said, I'm, <laughs> I'm playing center field for Dave Steep. So you have no idea. That is my hero. Anyways, he was so devastating. I, I remember uh, playing with guys once I moved along into the pros and they talk about Dave Steep. He was the guy nobody ever wanted to face. There would be guys who would say, I'm not playing. I like, there'd be a reason why they wouldn't play. They had a cold, they had a sore arm. Nobody wanted to face Dave Steep when he was in his prime. He was so scary, so nasty. 
And then it became Dave Stewart. Oh, okay. Nobody wanted to face Dave Stewart, mainly because he might be the most intimidating human being anyone's ever been around. Like, I, I think he, this guy would scare Mike Tyson. Like, he was, <laughs> he was uh, a terror and just so, like, oh, this when it was game day with Dave Stewart, even his teammates were afraid of him. Nobody would, like, do anything to mess with Dave Stewart ever. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we, we were lucky enough to have them on our side. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 100%. There we go. Speaking of lucky enough to have people on our side, the modern day Jays, they got they got Vlad Guerrero Jr. And he he was pretty much the league MVP, apart from the fact that he couldn't pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Shohei Otani. But looking at the current crop of players, how are you feeling about the, the Blue Jays 2022? Well, I know that they have a chance because you always have a chance. And with this team, with these guys, it reminds me so much of like the 1984 Toronto Blue Jays, where the mm -hmm. team was just getting so close to come together to start really winning and going to the playoffs and going deep and, you know, being, the, being the, one of the top teams. These guys are so talented. They're so young. And that's the most amazing part is how young they are and how good they are. You know, it's, I know how difficult it is to be a major leaguer consistently playing good and you know, being at the top of your game at all times, and especially the way the game is now, it's so much more challenging because everybody is so damn good. Everybody throws 100 miles an hour, and it is amazing to see how good how good they are becoming. But there's always, if you don't have a setup man and a closer that are consistent, that carry you the whole season, it's really tough to win. And I, I think they have enough in their lineup to win. They have good defense. It's just whether they have enough pitching. That's It's the bullpen, man. It's when the Blue Jays got Tom Hinkie and Dwayne Ward, it, it was like it was a sure thing. You know, for seven years, eight years, the Blue Jays were a team that always finished close to being in first, going to the playoffs, getting to the World Series because they had a close and a setup man. There we go. Inning eight and nine are taken care of. Just get mm -hmm. to get to the back end of the innings. Yeah, the first inning is easy to play. The ninth inning is the hardest inning to play. There we go. Now, just staying in a similar vein, the you played at the Sky Dome. What, what do you think about the, the future home of the Blue Jays? Do you think they should... Stay at the Skydome or perhaps look elsewhere? Was it, was it a, a place you'd like to play in? Aside from the external pressures of family and friends, as a, as a stadium, what was it like for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Skydome is an amazing park to play in. I think, everybody, I think everybody who plays there loves playing there. It's a great park to hit in. It's a great, it's, it's, it, you can see the ball. It's comfortable. You know, the ball fly, flies there. But the stadium as a whole is kind of, outdated and a little bit not not as nice as it used to be you know i i went to the i went to the skydome when it was half built um they let they let everybody have a tour i think it was like 19 1989 88 89 somewhere in there when it, just before just before i mean there, there was still dirt on the in, on the infield and but the stadium was kind of built and i still remember saying it didn't seem it didn't have that good old baseball feel even then even when it was built right the whole stadium as a whole didn't feel like um like a camden yards or yankee stadium mm. you know that old time baseball feel yeah, um, but I know everybody who's played there loves playing there. I don't think I've ever heard anyone complain about playing at the Skydome. It is a great place to play. I mean, I probably would say they should tear it down and build a nice, actual, real, old-time feeling baseball park. Mm. But I don't know if, as a taxpayer, I want to pay for that. That's kind of expensive. So I think they're kind of like if they can make their renovations and put some wood in there, make it more of like a woody kind of feeling, like a baseball mm. park. It would it would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I don't think now, they're asking for my advice. I'm not a consultant on that. You are a consultant, though. We'll get hold that thought. Hold oh, that okay. thought. Because I, I want to ask you played in the outfield, right? So when the when the roof was closed, did you find it harder to to look for those fly uh, fly balls, or was it not too bad in terms of seeing the site in the I guess the ceiling of the stadium? Uh, well, for me, I was lucky because when I played left field in the Sky Dome, I always had Devon White in center field. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> it was funny because one of the things, one of the first things Cito Gasson said to me was to make sure I catch all the balls that are foul because Debo will catch everything that's fair. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> he was an amazing outfield. I got to tell you, and, and up close, it's unbelievable how much ground he can cover so smooth and so naturally. But yeah, no, it was never really. I, I would say the only problem with the Skydom was the lights. Like it was kind of difficult in left field uh, and right field because that bank of lights, the ball would find its way in it a lot. Mm -hmm. And with all the people in the stands and the lights to contend with, that's the only time it was difficult. The roof was never a problem. The roof is kind of there's a contrast there. You can kind of see the you can see the ball, 
So definitely, it was never really an issue. It, was, it only ever would have been the lights. I would, I would say, anybody would complain about. Okay, I feel like that's something we could pass on to the, the mob that owns the stadium. Yeah. Give them some feedback <laughs> like that. Help I think them. a lot of people already have. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. It's up to them to do something, I guess. Now you are a baseball consultant, and and you run the the Rob Butler um, Baseball Academy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so I run. A, I run a. Uh, I used to own a uh, baseball facility. Uh, I don't anymore. I actually sold it. Oh. To to kind of freelance and give baseball advice and help teams build their teams and uh, elite teams, uh, you know, consult them on how to develop players because you know I've been doing it since 2000, and I think that we became pretty good at how to help nine, ten, eleven year olds be prepared for you know, playing their season, playing, becoming an elite baseball player, going to college. Um, we sent, we helped so many players go to college over the years. Tyler Black, you know, my last few years uh, at, the, at the cage, you know, Tyler Black went first round uh, last year. Nice. And he played for me for six years and was just that typical follow, kind of like the, the pro way of developing, you know, that we learned and how to take care of players and manage them mentally and physically and, you know, keep them loving the game and not feeling the, the, the intense pressures that they don't need to feel just and how to deal with those things. And that's what we kind of became really good at was just consulting families and players on, you know, what to do and what not to do. There we go. Uh, that's awesome. How did you get into that? So when I retired, I retired, I retired injured in 1999. I actually fractured my back. So my career ended because I wanted it to end. I was actually happy when my career ended. I walked into the Sky Dome. I was a major leaguer when I retired. And I remember walking out of the Sky Dome, and I was, and I it's funny I just told I I've been hitting with I was hitting with Joey Votto for a lot of the winter, and I told him I said you know I walked out of the Sky Dome on that last day knowing that I was never going to play professional baseball again, and I looked up at the sun and was like, I'm finished. Thank God, I'm happy with everything I've done. Goodbye, and um, goodbye professional baseball, because I wanted to. I'd already been thinking a lot about wanting to teach kids how to play baseball. I'd done some clinics when I was with the Blue Jays and with other teams, you know, they have run free clinics for kids in, in the towns that you're in. And I just loved doing it. So when I retired in, in 99, and I had actually had to take time off because I had to heal. I just drew, drew up a plan on doing summer camps and, you know, how I was going to train the kids and stations I would do. And, you know, without ever even having the kids sign up, you know, I didn't think I, I didn't even know a kid would sign up for my camp. But uh, it was something that I really wanted to do. I started advertising um, in a newspaper. I put posters up on the wall uh, at the parks. And I started my baseball camp at Stan Wadlow. And 50 to 80 kids came every week all summer long for seven weeks that we did our camp. And it just grew to be so big that I, I wanted to do training year-round. And I came to Ajax and partnered up, partnered up with another baseball player and we opened up a batting cage and it just continued on there and it all kind of evolved over the next 17, 18 years of running a baseball facility. It was amazing. Yeah. Now you love to see that and you built it up. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Last question for me. Do, do you think it's time for Canada to have another major league baseball team again? Oh, definitely. I, I wish, I wish the Expos never left. They were, um, I mean, I know it's difficult to fill stadiums and to, to make a lot of money to can sustain a baseball team, but I definitely think it, it needs another team again. I think the Expos definitely need to come back. I think times are different. They put the stadium in the right, in the right part of town where it's easy to get to, and they build a team with a cast of characters that everybody loves that it would be, we need another team. It would be so much fun again. It, it doesn't feel right that we don't. Like, it's... It's still odd to me that they ever left. You know, Larry Walker went to play for Colorado. Like it, yeah. just, uh, it wasn't right. It just didn't feel right. I, I really hope that they can. I know they're trying, and it'll be amazing to have another, a second team in Canada for sure. Yeah, they've been they've been talking about it for a while now, and it, it looks like they're trying to come up with some way of doing it. I know Nee's looked into it a bit, Nee. Yeah, there's been talk of, you know, like a timeshare between the Tampa Bay Rays and Montreal. I mean, I, know, I don't know if it was actually – I think Tampa Bay came just after you finished playing, uh, Rob, but it doesn't seem like they get a lot of fans down there at the, at the trial. No, it's interesting. My brother actually played for Tampa. He was um, he went in the expansion draft, I think fifth fifth round, fifth fifth player taken by Tampa. So he was there their opening season, and, and that was, what, 1998. So 
So he was there in 1988, 1989, and they were really struggling with fans. But I think everybody knew in Florida, because too many people kind of come and go there, mm. um, that they, it would be it'd be tough. For some reason, it's just, I mean, you'd think it would be jam-packed every night because of Florida, and mm. everybody goes to Florida to play baseball for spring training. So it's, it, it's been an odd thing that, I mean, their stadium is obviously terrible. They don't have a great stadium there. They're kind of stuck in that yeah. weird-looking dome that they have. And, <laughs> the stupid and, catwalk rules. Yeah. Yeah, all those issues that they had early it wasn't good. It wasn't a good sell. But somehow the team has won so many times. Like they, they've been one of the top teams and they still can't sell out. So something's not right. Like it's just not the feel this isn't right there. Like there's just, just something's wrong with it. So I, I think the team should come to come to Montreal. Exactly. Get them out of there. hundred <laughs> percent. Bring them up. There we go. Now, Rob, I'm gonna get into some nitty gritty stuff. Are you ready? Oh yeah. Okay, good. Because I asked, I asked Mickey about this last year. Now, last year, 2021, things were a little bit different. The CBA hadn't been signed. And now we got a new CBA. So I want to get your thoughts on some of these rule changes that Mr. Manfred and uh, <laughs> you, you're going to find out I, I like Manfred a lot. <clears throat> Not really. But um, <laughs> what's your take on the Universal DH as someone who played in both American and National Leagues? Well, I definitely like it. I definitely think it'll make it more competitive. I don't like, I mean, unless pitchers are going to be all like Otani, where they're competitive and they're trying and, you know, it's, 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 it's too much of an easy out for the other team. I, don't, mm-hmm. I just don't like that. I didn't like that the pitcher was just a, sitting, a, a dead duck at the plate for most of the, most of the time. You know what I mean? It was embarrassing. Yeah. It wasn't, it's not good. It's not a good, like he's up there and you got to put a coat on when he runs the bait, like all stupid stuff. That shouldn't be happening. Exactly. It's not, it's not, it doesn't look right. It looks, it's too, it's too fluffy. Is I do like work? that because I played for Philadelphia. I did like that there's more strategy involved with getting players into the game and getting the pitchers out of the game. That actually helped me play a lot more when I was with the Phillies. I was a, kind of like a fourth outfielder, a replacement uh, yes. for Darren Dalton because he had moved to the outfield. So whenever his knees kind of got sore, I'd go get to play. And when pitchers would come out, they do double shifts and everything. I would, um, I would be the guy that would come off and, and get to play um, way more, like way more than I would have as a DH. You know, especially with the Blue Jays, if you were on the bench in in the American League back then, and the team was like Toronto Blue Jays, you didn't get to play a lot, right? Cito Gaston never needed to make a change. It was he had his nine guys. DH was in there, and you know, it, you you didn't get to play. Whereas in the in the National League, you definitely got to play more. It'd be it'd be more fun if they found a way to get get more involved with the switches. I don't, I mean, they can never do it, but to get more players in and to change up the lineup, but the pitcher hitting is awful. I mean, I don't, I don't care to even say it. it's terrible. I mean, I know there's a few good ones out there, but it's just not enough to make it where it's actually interesting. Yeah. And I know there is a rule that has come in that allows the likes of Otani to stay in the game. If they come out of pitching, they can switch out with the DH, mm-hmm. now, but yeah, otherwise it was a bit silly. Yeah, you know, pitch has to go running, borrow bat. There's more yeah, <laughs> there's, exactly. more, there's more risk they're going to get hurt. Isn't that funny? Pitcher, you know hit. what? And it's funny because my it's a funny story. My brother was my brother was a rookie in, with the Toronto Blue Jays in '97, and uh, they had to go play the Mets, and this was like during the first times of inter, interleague play. And Paul Quantrill was, I believe, it was Paul Quantrill was hitting, and he broke my brother's bat, and he broke it, and it was the only bat he had for the major leagues. <laughs> and the, he just picked it off out of the shelf. It had to be my brother's bat, and he broke the damn thing. So my brother had no bat of his own to use after that until I don't even know what he did, but he was so mad. It was funny, I think, when he told me that he called him and said, Mom, my bat's broken. The pitcher broke my bat in the game. Great. <laughs> Jeez. One thing the league has kept is the, the extra base runner and extra innings. What are your thoughts on that? I definitely, I definitely find it uh, interesting that it puts – kind of pressure right away in the extra innings because the extra innings can drag on and be just so tiresome to watch. And if you want to speed the game up, you kind of got to have some action happening. So I, I actually don't mind it. I actually like watching that. It is kind of softballish. Some people would say that because that's kind of a mm. softball rule that they have. But I think definitely it, it makes things happen and you don't have those 23 inning games where nobody's in the stands anyways. Like it's so time consuming and drains your team. And you know a lot of teams don't recover for a week if they play like an 18, 19, 19 inning game. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think it's more interesting. I like. I, I don't mind it at all. Oh. All right. That's a different perspective. <laughs> mm-hmm. What about the the minimum number of pitches? So I think it's three outs. 
per pitch or something now? I definitely like that as well because having these pitchers come in and pitch to one batter and getting out of there drags the game on. It makes it more difficult for um, hitters, for sure, uh, to face these guys just come in to face you only. It's, it should be more challenging for them to stay in longer the way it used to be. Like relievers would come in and pitch two and three innings. Like that's, that was their job. Mm-hmm. It definitely makes them more valuable, more, more worthwhile to be an all-around pitcher and get lefties and righties out. I, I think it definitely keeps the game moving, makes it harder for the team, definitely makes more strategy involved. I, I think it does. So I, I like that rule as well. I definitely would rather see a reliever have to come in and stay in longer. There we go. Now, don't hold back on this one because you won the World Series. So what would you have done back in 2017 with Houston? Oh, you know what? I had the opportunity if I wanted to do steroids as a player. It was um, offered to me, offered to a few of my other teammates. And the first thing in my mind was I was never going to cheat. I was never going to do something that would put me in peril, but also be involved with cheating in the game. You cheat in anything in life, you pay a price, and it's usually you fail, and your success is taken away. I mean, they go down the road five years down the road and take Olympians' gold medals away. Yeah, yeah. They they needed it's they, <laughs> and that's a hard one for me because steroids definitely impact the game. And I love and I love the steroid excuse. And the stealing signs excuse of it's not it, it's not really impacting how the outcome it's, it's it's such crap it always impacts the outcome when you get a hitter who can't hit a home run and all of a sudden he does steroids and it's thirty five home runs he impacted a lot of games he changed what would happen and when guys are stealing signs it's impacting the game and doing it externally like that where they're using devices and things that are it, it, it's insanity that they were the World Series should have been changed as hard as it as hard as it is. They shouldn't have won the World Series. They cheated. They won it unfairly. They didn't do it player by player, pitch by pitch. They knew what was coming through all these stupid devices. And we're sticking. When a hitter knows a fastball is coming and not a curveball, I'm telling you, he's a thousand times better hitter. It's mm-hmm. definitely going to make the whole game change. Hundred percent. Yeah. No, no I, don't, I don't think either of us is going to disagree with you there. And, definitely not. And another thing about it too, I'm so surprised more teams didn't do more damage to like as much as i'm not there into like, people and fighting i've seen brawls happen over the littlest thing where where they think a hitter has peeked at the catcher and may be able to peek down and see signs right as he's trying to concentrate on a hundred mile an hour fastball coming at him and brawls start over that and these guys were full on full on stealing signs cheating I, i'm amazed that these guys survived the next season I, it, it amazes me that nothing ever kind of came of it yeah, I think they were lucky that at the, immediately after the first season was played without fans. So That's right. There was, there was mm-hmm. that. But yeah, you're right. I think only Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly is the one that I vividly remember when he, he threw it pretty much through at Bregman's head and then he kind of threw, threw it behind Carlos Correa. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, no one really dinged. It It didn't help that the league put out some, some statement that, oh, oh you know. We're going to punish that kind of behavior, which is strange. But anyway. I know. It's funny how it just kind of became so forgotten so quickly. Meanwhile, it impacted another team's, I mean, your, your World Series bonus. I mean, how much money the guys lose because this team won the World Series. Now they get to live forever celebrating that they won a World Series for the rest of their lives while the team that probably should have won doesn't get to do that. Like, it's not right. Like, yeah. like Shula Still Jackson is, is erased from baseball for life. Pete Rose is erased from baseball for life. Yep. How the hell do these guys get away with this? And it's it's okay all of a sudden. It doesn't. It made no sense. Yeah, like guys got sent down to the minors. Managers lost their jobs. Like you said, the World Series was tainted. So the Dodgers went from winners to to losers. Mm-hmm. And then there's questions over Clayton Kershaw and his legacy. But it doesn't help that Manfred then comes out later and says, "Oh, it's just a piece of metal." How did you feel as someone who's held that trophy? Did you hear those comments at the time? I did not hear that. He came out and said that it's just a piece of metal. Yep. Like the, 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 the most prestigious thing in all of baseball is winning the World Series and ho- holding up. Like it, it's, what, it's, it's what changes everyone's world. It's what everybody lives for. It's what you live for as a, baseball, as a kid. Everybody wants to play in the World Series and hit that home run that wins the World Series like Joe Carter did. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be the most irresponsible kind of like shameful um, I, I mean, there's so many words I can describe that would describe saying something as stupid and 
almost like cowardly. That's a, that, that's a coward talking. That's someone who doesn't want to handle the situation and say it's less important now when it's the, the most important thing. Him handling the situation, like in a way he's done what he wanted to do, which was erase the situation, right? Mm-hmm. It was about protecting the brand, not protecting the players. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not right. It's um, Especially, yeah. because I hardly come down on people for other things. Like this is probably the most, exactly. like the worst thing you could possibly do as a baseball player is cheat. And they're like, it's okay. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it never will. It never no, will. It's consistently inconsistent. However, though, this, this interview was consistently very good. And we appreciate having you on, Rob. So if, on Twitter for our listeners, it's ProBaseball underscore Rob to find yeah. Mr. Butler. And then on Instagram, definitely give Rob a follow there. Rob, is there anything else you wanted to share with our audience before I let you go? I'm happy to be here. Happy to have done this with you guys. It's great. Baseball is the greatest sport ever. I can honestly say baseball in so many ways saved my whole life. Made me who I am. And I got to live my dream of of being a baseball player. I got to live my dream of being a Toronto Blue Jay. Got to live my dream of being a World Series champion. Got to live my dream of playing in the Olympics for Canada. And even through all the trials and tribulations and all the things you deal with, and then, you know, I'm not the only one which really helped me get through it all, um, knowing there's so many people just like me, you know, suffering inside sometimes. And you just, I'm the luckiest guy. I, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy alive. I got, to, I got to be the biggest fan of the Toronto Blue Jays, and I got to play for the Toronto Blue Jays. Can't complain about that. That's awesome, buddy. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. You should write a book. Yeah. We go. My wife keeps saying that. You know, my wife is... Um, yeah, she keeps saying that because I think she's, she's so tired of all these stories I tell. She wants me to write it all down and put it out there because it's, uh, she wants other people to hear them for once because there's so many. There's so much stuff that happened and what we lived through and it was so much fun, so challenging, so amazing, so scary. It's like it's everything. It's, it, was, it was awesome. I, I'm still living baseball. I still get to do it. And, you know, I, I can't complain one word about baseball. I love it. Right on. If you have any questions for the Pro Sports Podcasters, be sure to reach us on our Twitter account, where you can also slide into our DMs and catch the latest snippets, dirt, and other exclusive things that we will tweet. Check us out at P Podcasters on Twitter.